Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Catherine Hughes took six years to write her first dual timeline novel, The Letter. It was the book that went on to become a word-of-mouth bestseller that knocked Gone Girl off Kindle's number one spot. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Catherine talks about her stories of family secrets and deep emotion and the excitement of having actress Joanne Froggatt, Anna Bates in Downton Abbey, voice her third book, The Key, for audio. You'll find a full transcript of our chat and links to everything discussed on thejoysofbingereading.com, the website for the podcast. If you enjoy this episode, why not subscribe to hear it every week on either iTunes or Spotify and leave a review so others can find us too. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Jenny at BingeReading.com. But now, here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Look, I always like to begin in this predictable way with the once upon a time question. If you, was there a moment when you had an epiphany and thought, I've just got to write fiction or, or I won't have done what I'm here on earth to do? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? I don't think there was an actual catalyst for it. I think, if, looking back, I'd always wanted to write a book. I didn't actually always want to be a writer. Uh, those two are very different things. Um, and when I was in my 20s, I had a go at writing a Mills and Boone. I don't know if you're familiar with that brand in New Zealand. Definitely, yes. Um, formulaic. Oh, you are. So you all know what it is then. And it's extremely popular. But I was mistakenly thinking it was actually would be very easy to write. It isn't. It's very, very hard to write. And they have extremely high standards. But nevertheless, I did write about 50,000 words of this Mills and Boone thing. And it, it was probably terrible. I have absolutely no idea where it's gone to either and hope it never surfaces. But back in 2007, I did have an idea for a book and it would surround an old unposted letter. As to who wrote the letter but never sent it, who should have received it but didn't, and who eventually found it, I had absolutely no idea. All I had was a brilliant title for it, which was obviously the letter. I just had to expand that idea to 90,000 words. Um, Easy. <laughs> yes, we all know how easy that is. Look, just tracking back a little, I'm interested to hear you make that distinction between writing a book and being a writer. Could you perhaps expand a little on that? Well, I was very naive, and, and we'll probably cover this later on in the interview, but I was very naive, and I just thought, well, if I'd just written a book, a publisher is going to think, oh, we, this is great, thank you very much, we'll publish it. No, because one-book deals are hardly ever heard of, because the publishers want you, well, I'm talking about commercial fiction here, they want to know that you can keep producing, you know, ideally for them, not for me, ideally for them, a book a year. 
So it becomes a career. They don't want you to just be a one-book wonder. Publishers, quite rightly, maybe don't want to invest in that because when a publisher takes you on, you know, they've got to, especially if you're a debut author, they've got to build the profile. They've got to persuade supermarkets to take your books, you know, stock, stock them on their shelves. It's, it's a lot of hard work for them. And if the author can follow it up with a book after that and then another and then another, then it's absolutely great for them and great for the author. Now, it's amazing to me that you say that you just had this idea about a letter, an unposted letter, nothing else, and you managed to expand that into a 90,000-word novel. Now, And you're, an, you're a beginner writer. I mean, now I'm sure that with your experience, you could probably take an idea like that and start spinning out the storylines quite uh, quickly and confidently. But how on earth did you get from that tiny nutshell to a whole tree? And what was it about that idea that kept you mesmerised and focused in the hard times? I think, yes, first of all, I thought it was a really, really good premise I liked the idea I liked the fact that the letter had not been posted even though it had got a stamp on and it was all ready to go and I liked the idea of somebody finding it and then as a distraction from what was going on in her life at the time if anyone's read the letter they'll know what that is um I just thought just the mystery and and then of course taking the reader back to when the letter was written so then the reader is kind of like a head of the characters in the story because the reader is slowly learning what, what's going on. But this was a, a thing that I didn't plan and it, it took me six years, to be honest, from start to finish because I was working full time. So it wasn't kind of a thing that, it wasn't quick, put it that way. And I knew how I wanted it to end, but sometimes when you write a book, the, the journey is different. You know where you start and where you want to finish. But sometimes the characters drive the narrative more because you get to know them better as the book goes along. And then you might think, well, actually, this character wouldn't have behaved in that way. So I'm going to have to think of something different to get to where I want to be at the end. So it's kind of an organic thing, really. It's not, for me anyway, it's not set in stone and it can change as, as the book goes on. But as for it getting easier as we go along, it definitely doesn't for me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. But you had a most remarkable success with the letter. It was downloaded 10,000 mm. times in five days. It became a runaway word-of-mouth mm. bestseller. Um, that, that is remarkable. Even if it was a very good book, that's quite a remarkable result. How do you th why do you think that happened that way? Well, I can definitely answer why it was downloaded 10,000 times in five days, because it was free. Now, it had been on sale in the Kindle charts because I self-published it, which will probably come on to after, because I couldn't find a publisher. I self-published it. But there are over 2 million books in the Kindle store. You know, th there was more chance of somebody finding it in the back of my filing cabinet here. Those odds are virtually insurmountable. So trying to bring people's attention to it when there's just so many books out there was really difficult. So I did make it free for five days and 10,000 people downloaded it. Now, that didn't matter that I'd not been paid for those. All of a sudden, 10,000 people had got my book on their Kindles. So as they began to read them, review it, and more importantly, recommend it to friends, gradually sales took off. And eventually, eight months later, 
He got to number one in the Kindle store, Knox Gone Girl off the top spots. Oh, my gosh, is that right? That is fantastic. Um, that, that still is remarkable, though. I must pay um, tribute to you because today there are masses of free books and most of them don't get 10,000 downloads. It yes. was probably partly your timing at being at the beginning of that wave of indie publishing as well, was it? Definitely. Oh, definitely. This, I'm, I'm talking about 2013 Yeah, when this book was first published. Yeah. So where are we now? So it's six years ago. Yeah, oh, you're definitely right. There are so many, maybe more than two million books now. I don't know. Because anybody can publish a book now, everybody is. Yes. But it is drawing people's attention to it. Having said that, I would definitely not deter anyone from doing that because if people, you know, it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. And if you don't try, then you'll never know, will you? Oh, that's absolutely right. But you you found a publisher pretty well immediately. That's something that obviously is going to attract notice of a publisher. And now you are traditionally published, I think. Is that right? I am, yes. I only found a publisher, when I say immediately, uh, I'd already tried finding a publisher before I self-published. When I say publisher, you have to go through an agent first, a literary agent. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you get taken on by a literary agent, then they will try and sell your book to publishers. So a, a literary agent doesn't make any money until she said, sells your book onto a publisher. So they're really hard to get because they don't want to spend a lot of time on something they're never ever going to get paid for yeah understandably you know they've got enough work to do with the authors they do represent but it was only when the book reached number one that I was contacted then not by an agent directly from Headline who are a major UK publisher asking you know could they take over the publication of the ebook because I'd only self-published an ebook I hadn't self-published in paperback because it's, it's way too expensive uh, so headline said, would I, um, you know, like to find a deal with them for the ebook and the paperback? So I was just, well, blown away. Well, let me think about this for a minute. So go on then. <laughs> the only problem was two books, a two book deal, which is great <laughs> if you've written two books. Not so great if you've only written one book. <laughs> That's great. But you have now followed up with two other dual timeline stories, dealing with family secrets and that deep emotion, they're very much in the same um, frame. Would you classify them as women's fiction rather than mysteries per se? Because they're very deep on the emotion, aren't they? Yes, Jenny, I think I would classify. Whenever people say to me, what type of books do you read? I always say women's fiction. But then I do get lots of comments from men who've enjoyed them as well and said, oh, I bought your book and gave it to my wife, you know. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? I didn't write this book for you. You know, it's women's <laughs> fiction. But, you know, everybody can can enjoy, you know, any, anything they want to, can't they? So, yeah, I would think, that, I mean, I'm sure in Amazon's, Amazon has like subheadings. I'm pretty sure it's down there in, as women's fiction mainly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. With it, it, with it, I think my contract is something like dual timeline women's fiction with emotional content. You know, have to when I when any author signs a contract, there has to be some kind of acknowledgement of what you're going to write next. So I can't sign a two book contract and then my second book be I don't know crime or science, science fiction or fantasy. It, yeah. It's got to be in the same yes. genre. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Which is probably understandable. Yeah. And the, at least the last two has, have also had 
foundation in a historical event or incident that is kind of there as either the platform or the, the way the story is launched. In The Secret, it's a Welsh mining disaster. And in The Key, it's based on something that happened in a New York uh, mental asylum. Yes, that's right. How do you find those little nubs? Are you always looking for those ideas? Absolutely. With the Welsh mining disaster, or that, I can remember it really clearly. We were in Wales at the time uh, with some friends, and my friend Dave was telling me about his grandfather, who was in this uh, mining disaster in North Wales. There was a massive explosion underground, and in the end, it just became so unsafe to rescue the miners that the rescue operation was called off and the the mine was sealed with the bodies still inside. I just thought, oh, and there's a memorial there to them to this day. And I just thought, oh, that is a tragic story. So although The Secret's not really about that, it does explain um, how one of my characters uh, meets his end right at at, at the beginning of the book. Um, And definitely in the key, that that was based on an article that I read um, concerning the Willard Asylum in New York when it closed its doors for the last time in 1995. Some years later, it was being cleared out and a cleaner discovered an attic full of over 400 suitcases that had been locked away and forgotten about. And these cases belonged um, to former patients who had most probably died in there. And it just kept me thinking, gosh, how how do you pack for a stay in an asylum? You know, what do you take when you don't even know how long you're going to be there? What do you need? And, and to be honest, the answer is very little because... You know, you can't even wear your own clothes in the silence. They give you communal clothes right down to the underwear. So I just thought that was a really good premise because when I started researching our Victorian asylums in the UK, same thing happened. The cases were taken off and stored in an attic. And years later, when the asylums closed, there was loads and loads of stuff to let patients close there was um, slippers under the bed and you know lots of stuff virtually staff in many asylums well they were losing their jobs and cleaning up closing the asylums down was not done with any great enthusiasm shall we say so I just thought that was a great premise for for a story Sure, it's quite a dark premise, isn't it? And and uh, those people were just so stripped of any identity almost from the minute they walked through the doors. And you, you'd kind of think if you were looking at that on a back cover, you'd think maybe it was a fairly dark story. But there's been quite a surge in books that are, quotes uplifting. It's almost become a new category in, in, in commercial fiction. And I see from many of the comments that you get from your readers that, they do find your stories very emotionally uplifting. They get comfort and I think even validation from them. Was that something that you planned for or do you think it's something that's almost naturally built into your view of the world? I think with, I want to give readers a realistic ending, not necessarily a fairy tale ending, but realistic. And I think especially with the key, it has um, a bittersweet ending, shall we say. And I could have tied it up so that everybody lived happily ever after. So without spoiling it, they they kind of do, but it's not a fairy tale ending. I think it's more, 
it's realistic because I think it has to be because life doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't mean that we still can't be happy with what we've got and I'm thinking about the character in, in the key at the end. Um, but, you know, it is what it is and she's happy with it. And I think that reflects on, you know, life itself. We're very stoic, aren't we? We just accept the things that we can't change. Yes, and, and, and that almost gives me a little bit of extra insight into why people find them uplifting because you're really saying to them that even if it doesn't work out 100% how you would have wanted it to, it can still be okay in the end. That's really one of the sort of messages. And, and I agree with you. We won't tell how the key ends because obviously it would be a spoiler. But when you get right there, you feel a little bit sad that it is going to happen that way. But mm. There's actually something really fantastic about confronting that and still taking joy and 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 some sort of closure from it. That's right. Yes, as as the as the character says in the final line, it, and without spoiling it, she does say it, uh, it's it's not a fairy tale ending, but it's enough. And I always wanted to end the book yeah. on those words because it it, it was enough. Her and hopefully enough for the reader as well. Yeah, yeah that's right. I don't have to do a sequel. <laughs> so I was really <laughs> taken by a description that I read somewhere on your website that you said writing is like filling a swimming pool with a syringe. <laughs> um, what? Uh, well, I've I have pinched that from somebody else. Oh, have you? I've, I've read that somewhere. I didn't. Think, I did. I don't know who said it, but I could totally relate to it. <laughs> so, what, and it also feels like someone's pulling the plug out as well as you go along. So even even worse than that. So, what keeps you going when in hard times with your writing? What keeps me going is, well, I just look around my office. I can't really show you the webcam, even though you see listeners anyway. I've got a massive pile of books by the side of me on a desk, all my foreign editions. It's the, the letter and the secret have been translated into over 30 languages. So I've only got to sort of pick up the Chinese copy and look through that and just think, gosh, I wrote this and somebody in Beijing is now reading it. And that that kind of keeps me going. And then a very good friend of mine, she made a lovely, I wish I could show you, but I can't. She made a lovely canvas for me, um, which she had documented all the lovely things people had said about the letter. And there's about 30 quotes on there, just from actual readers. And then she had it made into a canvas. And I've got that on my wall, and it's just behind my computer. So sometimes I just push back the keyboard and lie back in the chair and just read those again, I think, yes, I've got to carry on. I won't say it always works, but sometimes it does. Oh, that's great. And that's wonderful that you've got so many foreign editions. That's remarkable. Mm, it is. It's staggering. Now, you, you, your books are also all built around deeply held secrets and families or close friends who withhold information and I, I recognise that there is something captivating for the reader about this idea of secrets. What do you think it is that, that you know, really hooks us in so much? Have we all got some family secret there somewhere in the background that has affected us or those around us? I think that's what it is, actually, Jenny, because people... Um 
in my books, they're all just normal, should we say normal, but normal families living in the back streets of Manchester. And yet things are going on that people didn't know about. And it causes us to think about our own families. You know, do I want to hold any secrets? You know, we all think of ourselves as, as being a normal family. But, you know, what's maybe going on in our own backgrounds that we don't know about? Yeah, and you mentioned about them being in Manchester. That was one of the other things I was going to ask you because they're all very firmly tied to the family and the community. There's no kind of glitzy parties. They're very much focused on a community um, and a family life. Is that the kind of world that you grew up in yourself? Yes, definitely. And I think you will have definitely heard the saying, write what you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these days it's much easier and so I would sort of go on to say, yes, write what you know, but also write what you can find out. And with the internet and, you know, our libraries and everything, it is easy to find out about other things. But, you know, you've only got to think about, like, I don't know, Thomas Hardy, for instance. All his books were set in Wessex, where he grew up, the Bronte sisters on those wild moors where they lived in their parsonage. All their books are set in those that kind of arena because that was what was surrounding them and that's what they knew about and it makes it more authentic their writing's more authentic because they're living it yeah 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 I noticed that um you've got audiobooks editions of course for your work as well and I noticed that Anna Bates mm. from Downton Abbey who well it's jo- Joanne Froggart sorry who who plays Joanne Froggart yeah who plays Anna Bates has voiced the audio at least for the first two books. I think the third one's got a different narrator, but that was quite a coup. How did that come about? It was, yeah. Well, actually, slight correction, she didn't voice it, but but The Letter and the Secrets were voiced by Rachel Atkins, who is um, an actor. It's always an actor who does it, but it was The Key, my third book, which was voiced by Joanne. And, you, you know, with you're not saying anything against Rachel Atkins because I actually wanted her to do the third book. I thought she did the fantastic job of the first two books. But the publishers, because um, I'm just a mere author, you know, I don't get much of a say. The publishers wanted uh, a more high profile um, name to read it. And so Joanne read it. Uh, fortunately, she liked it. And so she agreed to do it. And that was a very surreal moment for me because I went down to Amazon's Audible offices down in London and watched her record part of it. Not all of it, it takes two or three days, but listened to her reading my words. I just thought, this is just unbelievable. She's sitting in the sound booth. And even though I knew the next line that was coming, obviously I'd written it, she said it in a completely different way and made it come alive, you know, because that's her job. She's an actress, you know. Yeah. She's just, re- as Rachel was with the first two books, just they don't read it like we would read it in our heads. They, they, they kind of act it out and do the accents and, you know, it was just, it's just an amazing experience. And Joanne is from the north, like I am. So she had the right kind of accent, unless she's the other side of the penna and she's in Yorkshire as opposed to Lancashire. But um, they wanted someone with that kind of accent to, to read it. So, yes, I was really pleased with it. It's fantastic. And I would imagine that you might even get a little extra uplift when the new movie comes out later this year and Downton is back. (laughs) (laughs) I must confess that very belatedly I've been binge watching Downton because I interviewed uh, Jessica Fellows about her mysteries set set around the, um, 
the sisters whose names are uh, the Mitford sisters. And I got a little interested in oh, Downton because yeah. Jessica had done a couple of Downton Abbey books because she's Julian Fellow's niece. And I thought, oh, I must just have a look at a couple of these Downton Abbey books. And then I got hooked in. When the series first started, I wasn't so absolutely, you know, keen on it. But I got really hooked in. So I've been watching them all ready to get myself prepared to watch oh, the movie. <laughs> Look, turning, When's it coming out, the movie? Uh, I think it's September or later this year. I mean, it may, oh. with movies, they always get moved around, don't they? But at one stage it was slated to be September this year. Oh. I don't know if they're still on target right. with that, but, yeah. And as an author, you think, oh, man, how are they going to pick up all these storylines and make something new out of it? It's going to be, I'm quite fascinated mm. from a professional point of view as to how they, I know. Pick up the new storylines, exactly. yeah. Because as somebody commented, he they they tied it off reasonably neatly at the end of the TV series, where they paired up people very conveniently here and there, and you think, oh well, they're going to have to start up a whole new series of conflict issues, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Mm. Turning to your wider career away from the individual books, um, and uh, I was. Delighted to read that you said that the one day in your life that you'd like to live again would be your wedding day when you married your husband, Rob, in Vancouver, Canada. Describe that as the most fabulous day of your life. And I thought, look, isn't that wonderful? I did think, I wonder how many women would actually describe their wedding day as the most wonderful day of their life. Um, tell us a little bit about that you were still living in in England at that stage, were you? But you got married in Canada? Yes, we got married in Canada. And that came about because um, we, we knew of someone who'd been on a round-of-the-world cruise. And they said that the, they were talking about Fiji, uh, obviously quite close to you, and saying how it was the second best place that he'd ever been to on this round-the-world cruise, which prompted the question, well, what was the best? And the answer was Vancouver. So we thought, hmm, we wanted to go away and get married. And I realised that is quite unusual because I'm talking 27 years ago. Um, and we just thought, well, why not? And we got, did all the paperwork before we went. Uh, we had to be resident in Vancouver for five days. We chose the Rose Garden in Stanley Park, looked at it. It was, it was a mass with people. We thought, yep, this will be great went back the next day with the minister and the photographer and nobody around, absolutely nobody there. Anyway, we managed to find two ladies who were willing to be witnesses. Um, and it was just absolutely fantastic. I mean, they were just, one of them lived in Vancouver and the other was her sister-in-law visiting from Toronto. And they just, I only found this out later because we didn't really keep in touch with them because obviously 27 years ago, there's yeah. no email or I think we exchanged a couple of letters. But then we did manage to track them down 16 years later and we went back and we met the, the lady that lived in Vancouver but in, in the Rose Garden where we got married and we had our two kids with us then as well. So it was really nice. It was just such a lovely day that was just all about us and there was no drama there was no family it was really good and the band didn't mind we had a little party <laughs> that's when we got lovely back. <laughs> it's the closest thing to eloping without eloping isn't it, it really is. <laughs> it is really yes as long as my daughter doesn't do it <laughs> oh that's funny <laughs> look um 
I wonder if there's one thing you've done more than any other in your writing career that you would see as the secret to your success. I think, to be honest, just persevering, honestly, because you need to develop a, a sort of rhino skin, really, because it is horrible when people don't like your books. And not everybody, not everybody likes every book. You can you can't please everybody. All you can do is accept criticism, learn from it laugh at it whatever keeps you sane but the most important thing is 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 not to give up if you've written something that that you're proud of well okay maybe it can be improved upon but unless you start showing it to people um that's never going to happen and also just just keep going you know if you've written a book and that's something to be proud of in itself getting down ninety thousand words into some sort of order is actually, you know, something that you should be really proud of. So I think it's just, sure. just keep going. Uh, tell us a little about your method of working. Are you a workaholic? And if so, how do you unwind or, or de-stress? I'm definitely not a workaholic. Definitely not. You know, you hear some authors get, getting up at 5.30, doing three hours, and yeah, I'm not like that at all. If I'm at my desk by 10.00, then I consider the morning's got off to a good start. <laughs> and then, you know, by 11, I'm back in the house for a drink because I work outside in a converted garage because I do feel it's important that I leave the house. Otherwise, it feels like I've not actually gone to work. So just that detachment from the house. But I work in an office where there's no kettle, there's no toilet, so I'm back and forward anyway. And I try to, I try to, there's no internet. Well, there's a, there's internet in the office, but no email. So all my emails are in the house. So I just have to discipline myself. But I can't, I can't write for 12 hours and then call it a day. I don't know. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very slow. I wish my publisher, probably wish I wasn't quite so slow. But uh, I would definitely say I'm not a workaholic. Having said that, when you're writing, a lot of time is spent staring out of the window thinking what to put next. And I suppose that's still it's working. Part of the creati- My yeah. fingers aren't yeah. flying across the keyboard, but I am still Definitely. working. Definitely, it's part of the creative process. That's so right, yeah. Look, turning to Catherine as reader, the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and we, we've chosen authors who's, who either write in series or, like you, their books are very much related and can be read one after another as as a continuing, continuing story. Um what do you like to read and have you been much of a binge reader in the past? When I was in my teens, definitely, I used to binge read the likes of, well, Sidney Sheldon mainly and um, oh, Jeffrey Archer. I like, you know, they're never going to win any literary prizes, but they know how to keep the reader turning pages. And I just used to love those two. All my Sidney Sheldon books I've still got. And back then I just used to reread them, read read them over and over again I mean there wasn't I'm going back you know 30 years there wasn't as many books available as there are today but um yes I couldn't get enough of them and now uh, uh, all sorts of different genres I get sent a lot of books by my publishers to read and review so that's always nice um just uh, just a very very wide mix I like to read debut authors as well because I know that how hard it is to get your first book published. So I like to see what publishers are taking on. So just a very wide variety, really. I read more on holiday. Here, to be honest, when I'm working, I just read in bed at night, which is 
not really how books were were written to be read, if you know <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> Just a little snatches. So I I really love it when someone tells me that they've taken my book on holiday. I just say, great, because they'll just sit and read it. And that's how I intended it to be read. Yes. But we haven't still got the time, have we, to do that? Would you say, is there a modern Sydney Sheldon? Is there anyone who parallels his work today, do you think? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, Sydney Sheldon, his later books were not nearly as good as his first books anyway. I'm talking about his early stuff. But um, since then, I don't know, really. Mm. Because the genre, what is it? Kind of adventure, mystery, don't know, complex plots he had, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, I feel like I need to go back and read some more. Some of her, like James Michener and Leon Uris, they they were all kind of the same type of books that today, I've thought about that because I love James Michener, but those books wouldn't work today. There's far Mm. too much extra detail that readers won't be... um, they won't plough through these days. They were almost like encyclopedias of history no. and politics as well, although Sheldon wasn't quite like that. No. But, <clears throat> yeah, readers want to get through the story a lot quicker these days, I think. No, no, you're right. Yes, definitely, because there's just so many more books out there as well. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling back, looking through your career to this point, if you were doing it all again... Is there anything that you would change about how you approach things or are you just very happy with the way it's all unfolded? Ultimately, yes, but I sort of wish that I'd done it all 10 years earlier. You know, I first had the idea in about 2006, 2007, you know, and the book wasn't finished until 2012. I did an awful lot of procrastinating and I do realise I was working, but lots of people are working and, and writing, but... You know, as we've established, I'm also a workaholic. And I think having known what I know now, I do feel like I could have had a 10-year head start. So that would be the only thing that, that I would yes. change. So now you're doing one book a year. That's that's your programme, is it? Yes, although I have managed to negotiate an 18-month delivery date for the next book, for the one that I've not written yet. So I've got book four <laughs> coming out um, here in uh, June Yes, I was going to ask, so what, what is next for you as the writer? What are you working on now and what new projects do you have on the horizon? Well, the, ne- the one that's coming out in June is called Her Last Promise. And that came about um, when we went on a family cycling, cycling holiday uh, last June. Um, we were in the middle of rural Spain and we came across uh, an old abandoned hermitage like a monastery type thing on this peninsula high above the Joratan River and it's just such a fabulous looking place and I get got to thinking oh gosh I wonder what possesses somebody to give everything up and come and live this lonely isolated existence and so her last promise is set partially in Spain and partially in Manchester where where we where we do meet um a young single mother in 1978 who's bringing up her 14 year old daughter she goes off on holiday with her new man who is not what he seems to be and tragically never returns and so that's the premise for sounds fascinating I'm already wanting to read it and is it also a dual timeline yes it is yes it's set in the present day and in 1978 oh great right oh wonderful well, that sounds fantastic. Mm, so, I hope so. <laughs> do you have a lot of contact with your readers? And 
where can they find you online? I do have a lot of contact with readers on Twitter, on Facebook. They're the main things, to be honest. But I've got a website, catherinehughesauthor.com. But if, if readers want to get in touch, they mainly do it by Facebook and Twitter. Wonderful. And do you have much interaction with your international readers? Yes, the same, Facebook and Twitter, because they're, they're international, aren't they? Yeah, they're writing in their own language, so I have to hit the old um, Facebook translate button, which is not not the most reliable translation you'll ever read. <laughs> so it can be quite amusing. That's what I was wondering, actually, when you said you were published in so many languages. I thought, well, what, <laughs> well with this one again, now Spain, you're going to get readers in Spain. How do you handle that? <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, my husband speaks Spanish, so he's going to come in great help there. Oh, wonderful. That's very handy. <laughs> yeah. Look, we have now run out of time, so it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and all the best with the writing. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.